Well, good evening, everybody. It's a great delight to virtually welcome you to this, our second Catholic Theology Research Seminar of the Michaelmas term. For those I've not had the pleasure to meet before, I'm Paul Murray. I'm a professor of systematic theology, and I am Dean and Director of the Centre for Catholic Studies here at Durham University within the Department of Theology and Religion. And this evening, it is my great pleasure to be welcoming and hosting uh, Professor Gregory K. Hillis, who is a professor of theology and religious studies at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, as you will be aware, we've got a session on exploring Merton's theology of interreligious dialogue and uh, how appropriate for this to be coming to us from Louisville, um, 50 miles down the road or up the road from Gethsemane Abbey. And uh, Bellarmine University is home to the uh, archive of uh, the life and writings of Thomas Merton, the literary estate. Um, uh, Greg Hillis has been at Bellarmine since 2008. Before that, he was writing a PhD in McMaster, McMaster University in Ontario that was subsequently published uh, in various essays on the work of Cyril of Alexandria. And he brought out um, a regarded uh, introduction to a translation of Cyril's Glaphyra in 2018 by Catholic University Press. His interests have now broadened to be very much at the moment a Merton scholar and related interests. And his work on Merton has recently reached published um, fruition in a book by with liturgical press under the title of Thomas Merton, Man of Dialogue. And uh, this paper this evening is going to very much reflect some of that work and the question of um, Catholic Catholicity, uh, interreligious dialogue, is that an expression and enrichment of Catholicity or is it a dilution and contradiction of it? So we're really delighted to be with you this evening and you to be with us, Greg, across these virtual airwaves. And we now, I now hand over to you. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for hosting me. It's a real pleasure to join you and I hope to join you in person at some point. Um, I have a, a PowerPoint, so I'm going to share my screen now and uh, we'll make it so that you can read some of the quotations and some of the pictures that I will be using uh, for this presentation. Uh, I do want to note that uh, the photos that I'll be using um, uh, that, that you'll find on this PowerPoint are um, copyright of the Thomas Merton Center here at Bellarmine University. And as uh, Paul noted um, at the beginning, the, the Thomas Merton Center is the official uh, literary estate or the official repository of Merton's literary estate. Uh, it's well worth visiting. And um, if you ever, if any of you ever make your way uh, here to Kentucky and to Bellarmine, uh, I would be happy to introduce you to um, the people who work there and also show you a little bit around. So uh, I'm just going to get right into it and um, and delve into what Merton's understanding of interreligious dialogue is. In 2006, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops published the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. 
a book intended to provide an exploration of the faith for young adults. Each of the chapters opens by telling the story of a prominent figure, often an important American Catholic. The catechism features brief accounts of the lives of figures such as Sister Thea Bowman, Cesar Chavez, Fulton Sheen, and Dorothy Day, to name a few. Unnoticeably absent from the catechism is any account of the life of Thomas Merton, one of the most important American Catholics of the 20th century and one of the most well-known. This was a deliberate choice by the editorial board, chaired by then Bishop and now Cardinal Donald Worrell. Merton was originally to be included among those honored in the catechism, but he was deleted. When asked why, Bishop Worrell replied that, we don't know all the details of the searching at the end of his life. In October 1968, Merton boarded a plane from San Francisco bound for Asia. He spent the next two months traveling through India, Sri Lanka, and Thailand, learning about Buddhism and engaging in dialogue with significant Buddhist figures, including the Dalai Lama. Merton had been studying Buddhism for years prior to his voyage to the East, and he understood the trip to Asia as an opportunity to experience rather than simply read about a faith that fascinated him. Although Merton was clear in his private journal and his letters to friends that he had no intention of leaving the Abbey of Gethsemane permanently and therefore no, had no inclination to abandon Catholicism for Buddhism, his fascination with Buddhism continues to raise suspicious, uh, suspicions among some Catholics who, like Bishop Worrell, wonder just what Merton was up to during the last few months of his life. In my presentation this evening, I'm going to examine Merton's engagement in interreligious dialogue uh, during the last decade of his life. What I will address are the concerns occasionally raised by critics of Merton that his interreligious dialogue led him, uh, if not to a rejection of Catholicism, at least to a watering down of his Catholicism and his adherence to Catholic orthodoxy. Uh, in an essay I published uh, not long ago for Cistercian Studies Quarterly, I argued that his ecumenical and interreligious dialogue uh, emerged out of a profoundly Catholic Eucharistic theology. Um, but in my talk today, I'm going to speak less about the theological underpinnings of Merton's interreligious dialogue and more about how he engaged practically in interreligious dialogue. Of course, um, this will necessarily involve looking at what Merton felt he gained as a Catholic by engaging in such dialogue. Moreover, uh, given that some critics of Merton, uh, sorry, some critiques of Merton revolve around concerns about whether he was planning to convert to Buddhism and reject Catholicism, I'll devote some space near the end to looking at what he had to say about his own identity as a Catholic and as a monk in his letters and private journals during the last few years of his life. While Merton began seriously to engage in ecumenical and interreligious dialogue during the 1960s, his encounter with an interest in other religions began early in his life. His reading of Aldous Huxley's Ends and Means prior to his conversion brought him into contact with Eastern religions, as did his meeting with Brahmakari, a Hindu monk from India. Nevertheless, it was not until the mid-1950s that Merton began to delve more deeply into the study of Eastern religions. 
By 1956, Merton displayed a growing interest in Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism, through his reading of D.T. Suzuki. And this is a photo of uh, one of the only times Merton was allowed by his abbot to leave the monastery uh, when he was allowed to fly to New York City to meet with uh, D.T. Suzuki. Uh, D.T. Suzuki was a, a Japanese author who endeavored to bring greater understanding of Zen to the Western world. By 1959, he was engaged in a regular correspondence with Suzuki, as well as with numerous other figures outside the Catholic tradition. To understand what Merton hoped to gain from such interreligious dialogue, it is worth exploring an important passage from his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, which is published in 1965. In this passage, after referring to the heresy of individualism, Merton recounted what the true way should look like for Catholics vis-a-vis non-Catholic Christian traditions and religions. And here is what he had to say. The more I am able to affirm others, to say yes to them in myself by discovering myself in them, the more real I am. Sorry, by discovering them in myself and myself in them, the more real I am. I am fully real if my own heart says yes to everyone. I will be a better Catholic, not if I can refute every shade of Protestantism, but if I can affirm the truth in it and still go further. So too with the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, etc. This does not mean syncretism, indifferentism, the vapid and careless friendliness that accepts everything by thinking of nothing. There's much that one can affirm and accept that, sorry, he's, he actually writes, there's much that one cannot affirm and accept, but first one must say yes, where one really can. I want first to draw attention to his comments about syncretism and indifferentism. Syncretism is uh, the willingness to amalgamate religious ideas or practices from different religions indiscriminately, and, and indifferentism involves viewing all religions and traditions as essentially all the same without recognizing difference or varying levels of truth. Merton rejected both. He understood that there are real differences that have to be acknowledged and respected. Ecumenical and interreligious dialogue must begin from a position of affirmation because, Merton insisted, there is much that we can affirm and acknowledge in others, and our call to unity means we must strive for unity where we really can. However, we get nowhere by pretending that we can affirm and accept everything in another. In a wonderful turn of phrase, Merton describes such an attitude as a vapid and careless friendliness that accepts everything by thinking of nothing. Dialogue necessarily involves studying and understanding another tradition, and therefore grappling with the incompatible differences that exist. It does not mean watering down one's own tradition or truth claims for the sake of attaining an imagined agreement. Merton provided many examples of what this might look like, but there are two examples in particular that I want to highlight. The first example is found in his correspondence with Abdul Aziz, a Muslim from Pakistan. The second example is found in his 1968 book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite. And I'm gonna to turn to the letters with Abdul Aziz first. Abdul Aziz was a Pakistani Muslim who had a deep interest in mysticism and devoted himself to the study of Sufism. Aziz was the one who wrote to Merton first in 1960, having been given his address from Louis Massignon, 
the Catholic priest and respected scholar of Sufism. Aziz and Merton engaged in a correspondence that lasted until the end of Merton's life. Unfortunately, we don't have a picture of Abdul Aziz, but this is uh, a scan of uh, one of the letters that he sent to um, Thomas Merton. In his first letter, Aziz introduced himself and told Merton both of his own, of his own interests in Sufism and of his admire, uh, admiration for Merton's book, Ascent to Truth. Merton responded with a long and enthusiastic letter. Given the volume of his correspondence, and to give you a sense of the volume, let me just say that the Merton Center here at Bellarmine possesses over 20,000 pieces of correspondence to over 2,100 uh, correspondents. And given that Merton frequently complained in his journal and in his letters that he was overwhelmed with mail, it's noteworthy that he responded the way he did to his ease. Clearly, Merton saw in Aziz the opportunity to engage in serious dialogue. Merton responded by expressing his own interest in Sufism and his hope that Aziz could assist him in understanding Sufism more thoroughly. Most importantly, for our purposes, Merton gave us an example of what he meant when he wrote about saying yes where one really can, and he gives us this example in the final paragraph of the letter. Quote, as one spiritual man to another, if I may so speak in all humility, I speak to you from my own, from my heart of our obligation to study the truth in deep prayer and meditation and bear witness to the light that comes from the all holy God into this world of darkness where he is not known and not remembered. The world we live in has become an awful void, a desecrated sanctuary reflecting outwardly the emptiness and blindness of the hearts of men who have gone crazy with their love for money and power and with pride in their technology. May your work on the Sufi mystics make his name known and remembered and open the eyes of men to the light of his truth. Note how Merton did not begin his dialogue with Aziz by emphasizing the differences between their two religions. He didn't focus on the doctrinal issues uh, that separated and differentiated Islam and Christianity. Rather, Merton recognized himself in Aziz and affirmed their common identity as, quote, spiritual men who understood that prayer, meditation, and mysticism had something to say in a world increasingly turned away from the spiritual life. He and Aziz possessed a common understanding of the life of prayer, and it was upon this foundation that he wanted to engage in dialogue. As the correspondence continued, Merton focused on their shared understanding of God as compassionate and merciful, and their shared identities as, quote, brothers in prayer and worship, no matter what may be the doctrinal differences that separate our minds, end quote. When in one letter, Aziz provided a brief outline of Islamic theology, Merton affirmed what they held in common. Quote, I can certainly join you with my whole heart in confessing the one God with all my heart and all my soul, end quote. And he also expressed common faith, quote, in the angels, in revelation, in the prophets, the life to come, the law and the resurrection, end quote. At the same time, while acknowledging that it is important to understand each other's theologies, Merton emphasized that dialogue should be rooted in their shared experience of God rather than on points of doctrine. And this is what he has to say. Much more important 
is the sharing of the experience of divine light. And first of all, of the light that gives us, that God gives us, even as the creator and ruler of the universe. It is here that the area of fruitful dialogue exists between Christianity and Islam. Nevertheless, in answer to Aziz's questions about the intricacies of Christian theology, Merton didn't shy away from trying to explain the Trinity. And he did so in a way that he felt would be coherent to his Muslim friend, emphasizing that the Trinity does not compromise the unity of God. And this is how he goes about doing it. Here I think I can take, this is from Merton, here I think I can take an example that may enable you to approach the idea of the Trinity. I note that Ahmad al-Alawi, and that's an Algerian Sufi uh, who lived in the 19th and early 20th century. I note that Ahmad al-Alawi thought the Trinity, that the Trinity could be made comprehensible to Muslims, but the book did not say how. My approach would be this, just as you and I too speak with reverence of Allah Rahman and Rahim, the latter two refer to attributes or names of God referring to God's mercy. So I think you can see that speaking of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost does not imply three numerically separate beings. The chief thing that is to be stressed before all else is the transcendent unity of God. Now, as this unity is beyond all number, it is a unity in which one and three are not numerically different. Just as Allah remains one while being compassionate and merciful, and his compassion and mercy represent him in different relations to the world, so the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are perfectly one, yet represent different relations. It's worth noting that Merton used Islamic terminology as a springboard for explaining the Trinity as a way to make this com complicated doctrine more comprehensible for Aziz, as well as an, as an order, once again, to affirm what they held in common, that is, the unity of God, rather than focusing on what separated them. At the same time, as the letter continued, Merton was clear that despite these similarities, there are enormous doctrinal differences that exist, most notably revolving around the incarnation, and he doesn't shy away from talking about that. In 1965, Aziz sent Merton a translation of the Quran and suggested to him that he might want to incorporate chanting the Quran daily as part of his spiritual practice. Although Merton appreciated Aziz's gift, his response suggests uh, his response to Aziz's suggestion illustrates his concerns about adopting such a practice. He says, he wrote, I, it seems to me that here again, my task is rather to chant the sacred books of my own tradition, the Psalms, the prophets, etc., since I know the proper way of doing this. But on the other hand, I read the Quran with deep attention and reverence. It's clear that Merton felt that affirming the other as much as one fully can shouldn't necessarily translate into appropriation of another's religious practices, uh, particularly if, as was the case here, the chanting of scriptures was already practiced by him. This reticence speaks to the point Merton made about syncretism and indifferentism, where he emphasized that differences really do have to be acknowledged and respected. Nevertheless, the unity and friendship shared between Merton and Aziz is on full display in the beautiful 1966 letter in which Merton, responding to Aziz's request for a description of his daily life at the Hermitage, provided intimate details about his daily schedule and spiritual practices. Near the end of the letter, he described his own way of meditating, one of the few places in all of Merton's writings where we get a glimpse of how he prayed, writing that his way of prayer is centered entirely on attention to the presence of God 
Merton outlined how he endeavored to seek the face of God in his meditation. There's an intimacy in Merton's account that speaks not only to how seriously he took his dialogue with Aziz, but also to the depth of the friendship that developed between them. I do not ordinarily write about such things, Merton wrote, and I ask you therefore to be discreet about it. But I write this as a testimony of confidence and friendship. It will show you how much I appreciate the tradition of Sufism. Merton's letters to Aziz illustrate some key principles of his understanding of interreligious dialogue. First, he began from a position of affirmation. He was wholly unwilling to question or condemn Aziz's adherence to Islam, nor did he set about endeavoring to evangelize Aziz. Merton engaged him as one spiritual man to another, as someone with whom he had a great deal in common because of their shared desire to attain union with God. Second, Merton did not, in his dialogue with Aziz, water down his own Christian faith. Rather, he articulated his beliefs clearly and in a way that he hoped would be most clear for Aziz and did so without glossing over the real differences that existed between the two religions. Connected to this, just as he made himself vulnerable in articulating his faith and practices, so he expressed a total willingness to understand Aziz's faith and practices as fully as possible. Finally, Merton focused less on the matters of theology that could potentially divide them and instead focused on their shared experiences of God. This emphasis on dialogue rooted in experience is echoed in a, a chapter called A Christian Looks at Zen in his 1968 book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite. From the outset of the chapter, Merton acknowledged that setting Christianity and Zen Buddhism side by side to compare them is an immensely difficult and maybe even a foolhardy task. He wrote, this would almost be like trying to compare mathematics and tennis. If dialogue remains on the level of doctrine and theology, it will go nowhere, as Christianity and Zen have two quite different metaphysical landscapes. Moreover, as Merton pointed out, and here's another quote, Zen cannot be properly judged as mere doctrine, for though there are in it implicit doctrinal elements, there are entire, they are entirely secondary to the inexpressible Zen experience. However, Merton argued that it is on the level of this experience, it is on this level of experience that Christians can engage with Zen and even come more fully to understand the essence of Christianity itself. Too often, Merton argued, Christianity focuses on doctrinal formulas and juridical order and ritual exactitude. And it does so to the neglect of understanding that like Zen, Christianity is rooted in experience, namely the experience of entering into union with God. Because Christianity begins with the revelation of God communicated to us in words and statement, and because everything depends on the believers accepting the truth of these statements, we've tended to reduce Christianity, Merton thought, to a worldview. Uh, at times, as he wrote, a religious philosophy and little more, sustained by a more or less elaborate cult, by a moral discipline and a strict code of law, end quote. Zen's focus on experience, according to Merton, can help us understand, help us to recognize that however important doctrine and liturgical rubrics and moral theology may be, Christianity 
quote, is much more than the intellectual acceptance of a religious message by a blind and submissive faith, which never understands what the message means except in terms of authoritative interpretations handed down externally by experts in the name of the church, end quote. On the contrary, Merton continued, faith is the door to the full inner life of the church, a life which includes not only access to authoritative teaching, but above all to a deep personal experience. In essence, Merton emphasized a point that Pope Benedict XVI made in his 2005 encyclical on love, Deus Caritas Est. Being a Christian, Benedict wrote, is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction, end quote. Is Merton's point that the experience of the Christian is the same as that of the Zen Buddhists? No. Acknowledging that there are some who believe that mystics in all religions are experiencing the same thing and all alike in their and all are alike in their liberation from various doctrines, etc., Merton insisted that experiences cannot be so easily divorced from beliefs, which themselves shape and emerge out of those experiences. Differences in experience and beliefs exist and need to be acknowledged. Nevertheless, as was the case in his exchange with Abdul Aziz, Merton suggested in his chapter, in this chapter, that we can come to a deeper understanding of another religion or tradition, as well as a deeper understanding of our own tradition on the level of experience rather than on focusing on matters of theology or law. When it comes to interreligious dialogue, the question of salvation, particularly whether those in non-Christian religions are saved, emerges sooner or later for Catholics. This question understandably came up for Merton, and I want to look briefly at what he had to say about this question as a means by which to address some of the criticisms leveled against him. The idea that Merton understood all religions to be essentially the same, that they are all individual manifestations of the same basic truth, is a misconception he himself was careful to avoid. Moreover, we'll see that Merton never questioned his own Catholicism or his belief that the fullness of salvation was found within the Catholic Church from his perspective. Perhaps the best place to look at this would be to revisit very briefly Merton's exchange with Abdul Aziz. After two years of dialogue through correspondence, Aziz brought up the question of salvation in a 1963 letter. In particular, Aziz brought up a quotation by Pope Pius XI found in a book that Merton had sent to him. In 1934, Pope Pius XI was said to have made the following statement when dispatching the apostolic delegate to Libya, Cardinal Camilo Facinetti. And this is the quote. Pope Pius XI is said to have said, do not think you are going among infidels. Muslims attain to salvation. The ways of providence are infinite. Aziz wanted to know what Merton made of the statement. Merton's reply merits full quotation. It should be perfectly clear, Merton writes, that Christian doctrine on this point is in accord with common sense and the ordinary religious feeling of all believers. Obviously, the ultimate destiny of each individual person is a matter of his personal response to the truth and to the manifestation of God's will to him, and not merely a matter of belonging to this or that organization. 
Hence, it follows that any man who follows his faith and his conscience and responds truthfully and sincerely to what he believes to be the manifestation of the will of God cannot help being saved by God. There can be no question in my mind that every sincere believer in God, no matter what may be his affiliation, if he lives according to his belief, will receive mercy and, if needed, further enlightenment. How can one be in contact with the great thinkers and men of, different, of prayer of the various religions without recognizing that these have known God and have loved God because they recognize themselves as loved by him? It is true that there are different ways to him, and some are more perfect and more complete than others. It is true that the revelation given to the people of the books, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, is more detailed and more perfect than that given through natural means only to the other religions. Merton understood Pope Pius XI's remark to be fully in accord with Catholic theology. He felt no need to explain it or suggest that it could be at odds with certain perspectives with found within Catholicism. Rather, he unambiguously recognized the truth in the Pope's comments. That people in non-Christian religions have genuine experiences of God and come to know God was a point Merton understood to be obvious to anyone who had actually read and studied the great thinkers, the men and women in these traditions. At the same time, as the last two sentences of the quotation illustrate, Merton was clear that this does not mean that all religious pathways are the same or of equal value, and he draws specific attention, as did the Second Vatican Council, to both Judaism and Islam as being particularly close to Christianity, and so, in his perspective, more, quote, complete and perfect, end quote, in comparison to other religions. Merton expressed similar ideas in a 1965 letter to a member of a Ramakrishna order in California named Philip Griggs. In a letter to Merton, Griggs asked Merton whether, in his opinion, a devout Hindu holy man would be closer to God than a superficial Christian, or whether the latter's identity as a Christian automatically means he has a closer knowledge of God. Merton was unwilling to talk about the issue in such a zero-sum manner. He didn't feel the necessity to adhere either to a rigid perspective on salvation in the church or to total relativism. Neither were satisfactory. Rather, as Merton noted in his nuanced reply, one can affirm that non-Christians have a direct experience of God without compromising belief in the church. And here's this quote. You ask about the relative nearness to God of a fervent sadhu, that is a, a, holy, a holy person, and a superficial Christian. The church's teaching on nearness to God is that he who loves God better knows him better and is more perfectly obedient to his will is closer to him than others who may love, know, and obey him less well. Since it is to me perfectly obvious that a sadhu might well know God better and love him better than a lukewarm Christian, I see no problem whatever about declaring that such a one is closer to God and is even, by that fact, closer to Christ. The distinction lies in the fact that Catholics believe that the church does possess a clearer and more perfect exoteric doctrine and sacramental system which objectively ought to be more secure and reliable a means for men, for people to come to God and save their souls. Obviously, this cannot be argued and scientifically proved. I simply state it as part of our belief in the church. But the fact remains that God is not bound to confine his gifts to the framework of these external means. And in the end, we are sanctified not merely by the instrumentality of doctrines and sacraments, but by the Holy Spirit. And I repeat my conviction as a Catholic, 
that the Holy Spirit may, be, may perfectly well be more active in the hearts of a Hindu monk than in my own. Merton steered a middle path between the extremes of relativism and the extremes of exclusivism in his response to Griggs, and he did so by simultaneously affirming the objective completeness of Catholic doctrines and sacraments while acknowledging that the spirit is free to work outside the confines of the sacraments. From Merton's perspective, the church acknowledges that members of non-Christian religions can come to know and love God, and therefore that mere membership in the church does not guarantee that a person automatically has a more profound and deeper relationship with God than someone outside the church. God is to be found outside the church, but at the same time, Merton was unhesitant in affirming his belief that the Catholic Church provided the fullest and most complete means of bringing people to the saving knowledge and love of God, and he points specifically to the sacraments. But neither the sacraments nor the doctrines of the church guarantee nearness to God, particularly in the case of someone who is merely lukewarm in their faith and practice. God is not tied down to the sacraments. It's the spirit who transforms and sanctifies. And while the church does both through this, and while the spirit does both through the sacraments, the spirit is not bound to transform only through them. That the spirit works in the heart of those outside the church seemed to Merton to be obvious, but this didn't lead him to question his conviction regarding the objective fullness of Catholic doctrines and sacraments. Merton was, despite his own uh, understanding of the church as being the place where uh, the means by which the fullness of God's grace is given, he was also clear that the Catholic Church all too often failed to manifest Christ. And he really wasn't shy in his criticisms of the church through the 1960s. His criticisms were due in part to what he perceived to be the failures of the church, particularly the American church, to address the crisis of possible nuclear annihilation adequately. Too often he saw American clergy and theologians defending or even advocating what to Merton was unthinkable, the use of nuclear weapons. But his criticisms of the church weren't rooted only in his concerns regarding peace issues. Rather, throughout the 60s, Merton took the church to task for what he saw as being too great a focus on juridical matters and on the church as an institution. He saw the church too often emphasize law over love, dogma over people, and his criticisms of the church were frequently very harsh. But was his voice of criticism one that came from someone ready to jump ship? Not if we take his own words seriously. For example, in his 1963 preface to the Japanese translation of the Seven Story Mountain, Merton clarified for readers the ways in which he had changed since writing his autobiography. While acknowledging that his compassion for and understanding of the world had grown since he wrote the book, Merton insisted that his own identity as a Catholic, a monk, and a priest remained central, and he bore no regrets for his decision to convert and to become a monk. Moreover, he made it clear that he never experienced the temptation to reverse course. Certainly, quote, certainly, I have never for a moment thought of changing the definitive decisions taken in the course of my life to be a Christian, to be a monk, or to be a priest. Merton made a similar point in a circular letter he sent to friends in 1967. And this is what he wrote. In actual fact, I have never seriously considered leaving the church. 
And though the question of leaving the monastic state has presented itself, I was not able to take it seriously for more than five or 10 minutes. Being a Catholic and being a monk have not always been easy, but I know that I owe too much to the church and to Christ for me to be able to take these other things seriously. The absurdity, the prejudice, the rigidity and unreasonableness one encounters in some Catholics are nothing whatever when placed in the balance with the grace, love, and infinite mercy of Christ in his church. And after all, am I not arrogant too? Am I not unreasonable, unfair, demanding, suspicious, and often quite arbitrary in my dealings with others? Well, if you know any of the monks at Gethsemane, they will tell you that he was all of those things. Merton was attacked by his fellow Catholics, particularly American Catholics, for his positions on war. And he was also harshly critical of what he understood to be an overemphasis on institutional, you know, judicial, or sorry, juridical and authoritative conceptions of the church. But despite the church's faults, Merton experienced in the church the grace, love, and mercy of Christ. And he was not about to abandon that, no matter how far, far short the church fell from ideality. Merton traveled to Asia in the summer and fall of 1968, attending an interreligious and intermonastic conference in Bangkok, to which he had been invited by the Benedictine Jean Leclerc, and to, and to meet and dialogue with prominent religious leaders, particularly from the Buddhist tradition. He was also looking for a new place to live. Although Merton's hermitage, and there's a photo of the hermitage there, Although Merton's hermitage was secluded in the woods about a mile away from the monastery, too many people knew where it was and they would pop in unannounced. Knowing this, his abbot suggested that he might want to take the opportunity of his trip to look for a new place to live as a hermit, perhaps in California, Alaska, or even Asia, but that he would live there while maintaining his stability at Gethsemane. In other words, he would be a monk of Gethsemane, but would live as a hermit elsewhere. Merton was enthusiastic about this possibility, but the night before his departure, he made it clear that he wasn't looking to break ties with Gethsemane, even if he was a hermit elsewhere. Quote, I am not starting out with a firm plan never to return or with an absolute determination to return at all costs. I do feel there is not much here at the moment and that I need to be open to lots of new possibilities. I hope I shall be, but I remain a monk of Gethsemane, he wrote. In the months that followed, he continued to reiterate this point in letters back to Gethsemane. And in one letter to Brother Patrick Hart, his secretary, he wrote, keep telling everyone that I am a monk of Gethsemane and intend to, remi and, and to, and to remain one all my days. Merton traveled extensively during his nearly two months in Asia, spending most of his time in India. Not long after arriving at Calcutta in October, Merton attended a conference organized by an interfaith organization called the Temple of Understanding, at which he gave a talk on monasticism and dialogue between Eastern and Western religions. He prepared a text for his talk, but chose instead to speak more informally. His prepared text illustrates Merton's understanding of both the benefits and the limitations of interreligious dialogue. From his perspective, Dialogue on a deep level can occur between contemplatives from different religions because such dialogue can transcend the merely doctrinal so as to focus on the experiential. On this existential level of experience and of spiritual maturity, Merton wrote, 
it is possible to achieve real and significant contacts and perhaps much more besides. At the same time, he was clear that he was not proposing the idea that all contemplative or mystical experiences are essentially the same, regardless of genuine religious traditions, differences. He wrote, without asserting that there is complete unity of all religion at the top, the transcendent or mystical level, that they all start from different dogmatic positions to meet at this summit, it is certainly true to say that even where there are irreconcilable differences in doctrine and in formulated belief, there may still be great similarities and analogies in the realm of religious experience. As we've already seen, Merton was wary of any kind of dialogue that disregarded differences as irrelevant or inconsequential. And in his talk, in the prepared text, he wrote, there can be no question of a, of a facile syncretism, a mishmash of semi-religious verbiage and pieties, a devotionalism that admits everything and therefore takes nothing with full seriousness. Rather, he insisted, there must be a scrupulous respect for important differences. At the same time, for those who have entered into their own religious tradition seriously, interreligious communication, he thought, could take place at a very deep level. Such communication, he says, involves more than simply sharing ideas. Rather, quote, the kind of communication that is necessary on this deep level must also be communion beyond the levels of words, beyond the level of words, end quote. And when such communion happens, one has the capability, quote, to meet a disciple of another apparently remote and alien tradition and find a grab of a ground of verbal understanding with him, end quote. It was not a question for Merton of abandoning his own religious tradition or of disregarding interreligious differences. Instead, even while acknowledging differences, Merton insisted that it was possible to learn from, even identify with someone from another religious tradition. But this can only occur if each person takes their own tradition with utter seriousness. In his informal talk at the conference, which he gave in place of his prepared remarks, Merton emphasized that in order for communication on the deepest level to occur, those in dialogue need to be faithful to their own calling, to their own vocation, and to their own message of God. And when they engage in dialogue from this foundation, it is possible for them to discover a fundamental unity that exists and that allows for genuine communion to occur even while acknowledging differences. And he says in his um, informal remarks, he, he said, my dear brothers, we are already one, but we imagine that we are not. Merton's dialogue with Buddhists, particularly Tibetan Buddhists throughout the rest of October and November appeared to involve precisely the kind of communication or communion about which he talked. Perhaps his most famous dialogues were with the Dalai Lama, which took place over three meetings in November. Their conversations were wide ranging. They discussed epistemology, meditation, as well as Western monastic life. And after their final meeting, Merton remarked that he felt that there existed a real spiritual bond between them. And when describing his conversation with other Buddhists, he wrote that he experienced precisely what he described in his talk. Quote, so far, my talks with the Buddhists have been open and frank, and there has been full communication on a really deep level. We seem to recognize in one another a certain depth of spiritual experience, and it is unquestionable. 
However, while he found his dialogue with Buddhists enlightening and deeply meaningful, his thoughts were never far away from Gethsemane. In the same journal entry in which he described his meeting with the Dalai Lama, Merton wrote about how much his uh, uh, wrote about how much his appreciation for the Hermitage at Gethsemane had grown during his time in India. And as he contemplated the future, he wrote frequently in his journal that he could not see himself living as a hermit in Asia, but that he saw Alaska or California as being the most likely place for him to live out his life. Interestingly, he even suggested that he might go back to Gethsemane permanently. He wrote, I suppose I ought, to I ought essentially to end my days there. I do in many ways miss it. There's no problem of my wanting simply to leave <clears throat> Gethsemane. It is my monastery and being away has helped me see it in perspective and love it more. And in a circular letter he wrote in November, he makes it clear that far from making him question his identity as a Catholic monk, his dialogue with Buddhists seemed to be leading him even more deeply to experience the indwelling presence of God. He wrote, I wish you all the peace and joy in the Lord and an increase of faith. For in my contacts with these new friends, I also feel consolation in my own faith in Christ and his indwelling presence. I hope and believe he may be present in the hearts of all of us. To conclude, Merton was someone with a deep and abiding interest in non-Christian religious traditions, particularly Eastern religious traditions. And he traveled to Asia with the express purpose of learning about those traditions and discovering further points of convergence between his own contemplative tradition and Buddhism. But he made no secret of the fact that vast differences exist between Christianity and Buddhism that cannot and should not be ignored. More than once he spoke out against syncretism, recognizing that they do not that it not only violated Christian distinctiveness, but also the distinctiveness of non-Christian traditions. Merton didn't travel to Asia looking for a new religious tradition. Rather, as a monk steeped in his own tradition, Merton sought to understand more thoroughly not only what his own contemplative tradition offered to the world, but what all contemplative traditions, both Eastern and Western, offered to a world that too often seems bent on its own destruction. At a time when divisiveness manifested itself in racial injustice, and when it seemed all too likely that that divisiveness might result in nuclear holocaust, Merton endeavored to find lines of connection with other religious traditions as a means to counter the divisiveness that he understood to go against God's purposes for humanity. And he did so as a Catholic monk and priest who understood that he was called to work for this unity by his own Catholic tradition. Thank you.